If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Titus, chapter 2. The book of Titus, right after First uh, and Second Timothy, in the New Testament. The uh, second chapter, this is, uh, Paul brings up an important point. You know, this being the beginning of the season that's known liturgically as Advent, uh, when we focus actually not just on the first coming of Christ, but on his second Advent that is promised and that we await. And so it's, it's, you might say, it's fair game for preachers to preach on the second coming of Christ during the Advent season. And, you know, keep in mind, the ad, Advent season, those are things that Christians have agreed by, you might say, Christian culture to celebrate certain things at certain times of the year. We're not mandated. I was once accused of uh, being the kind of guy that would preach on the resurrection at Christmas and on the birth of Christ at Easter. And I was, you know, an Anglican friend of mine said that to me, and I was like, eh, yeah, maybe. I said, it depends what I'm doing in the, in the text. So we're going to be looking at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ today, just what it means, what it means to us, and how we should understand that. So in Titus chapter 2, at verse 11, Paul has some interesting things to say, and, and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. <clears throat> Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it is true. We thank you for giving us the Holy Bible that we can have your word in our very own language. So we pray that you would help us now to understand what you have said. And that by the work of your spirit, you would write it on our hearts in such a way that it would affect how we think and how we speak and how we act, that your word would become our guide and the standard of our lives. And we pray that you would forgive us our sins and not deal with us according to our failures and our iniquities and our transgressions. But we ask you, Heavenly Father, to deal with us according to your mercies in your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for sinners, Lord. And so we come to you in his name, asking for mercy and your help that we might truly know you as you have revealed yourself in the Holy Scriptures. So bless each one that is here. Help us not to become distracted in our thoughts. Help us to take good heed to your word. Help me to speak your word, not my own thoughts or opinions. And guide us and direct us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something here. You don't have to get up or anything like that. It's not one of those things, okay? So relax. I want you to think, okay? You can do that, <laughs> okay? Most of you are pretty good at that. At some point in your life, 
you probably had what you might go back and consider to be the most beautiful day you ever experienced. Now, if you think about it, I hope something just came to mind, you know, and you can think like, yeah, I remember a day, and it might have been some special occasion. It might have been your wedding day. It might have been the birth of your child. It might have been, uh, you know, some, something from your youth at Christmas time or some, uh, seeing a long-lost friend or things like that. It might have been something that wasn't uh, associated with a holiday or a major event. It might have just been a day you went for a walk. But if you think about it, you probably had at some point in your life, I hope that you can remember that you probably have had a beautiful day. If you were to ask me for that, I can tell you, I can re now, I've had plenty of them, okay, and I thank God for that. But I remember back, it's probably about 1964, which is ancient history for some of you. I was 12 years old riding my bike, and I remember there was a digital... Uh, temperature I was outside of a bank. This was in Hayward, California, where I lived at the time. And I looked up and gave the temperature. It was 78 degrees. Well, 78 degrees in the Bay Area is pretty close to perfect. And I remember just as a kid looking at that and thinking, wow, this is such a pleasant day. <laughs> you know, and I, then it just ingrained in my thoughts every time I see on, a, on a, the uh, temperature on the, uh, on the weather forecast, if it says 78, it's like, ooh, cool, okay, that's like going to be weather-wise a perfect day, all right? Now, that's just the weather. I've had other days I can thank God for, and I hope you can too. The thing that's good to know is that don't lose sight of the fact that because of God's promises, there are beautiful days yet ahead, <laughs> okay? You know, sometimes people lose sight of that, and they fall into despair, and they become sad, and they feel like, Oh, there's no joy in my life. As a Christian, though, if you're going through those times, fight it. Okay? Depression is an enemy. Never give in to it. Don't think like, oh, I'll just be depressed. Nobody loves me anyway. No, no, no. That's not true. Okay? You got people that love you. The Lord loves you. And there's good things. So we need to remember that. And God tells you in his word that there are good days yet ahead. And there's one day in particular. If I was to ask you, what in all of human history is the most beautiful day? Well, if we're talking about past history, we would say the day Jesus was born, okay? Or the day he rose from the dead. Uh, wow, you know, a, a God in, in Christ, you know, God incarnate. We're told God manifested in the flesh, according to Paul in uh, 1 Timothy 3.16. This one who came into the world took to himself a true human nature as a man, with all of our infirmities, yet without sin, that is, Christ was subject to pain and suffering and death, even though he was sinless, and he died on the cross. And then the third day, because he satisfied divine justice, because it was our sins imputed to him that made him subject to death, death had no legal claim, claim on him, and so he rose again from the dead, which is God's way of telling us that our sins are forgiven, because had one sin that had been imputed to Christ not been paid for, he would have remained under the power of death because God is a legal God. And that's why we're delivered from death because our sins have been paid for by our substitute. That is the one who represented us, who became us legally, which is Jesus Christ. He died and he rose again. Christ is risen from the dead. That's been the shout of acclamation in the Christian church since that day when it happened. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, never to die again. And as we say in the creed, he ascended into heaven and he presently is seated at the Father's right hand. From thence he shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Well, who are they? Well, I believe the living are those that have been born again. 
that have been brought to life in Christ. The dead are those who have not come to Christ, and, and on that day there will be a judgment. So I'm going to propose to you that the most beautiful day in human history ultimately has not yet happened, at least for us on a personal level, and that's the day when Christ returns. This is what Paul is referring to here in Titus. He refers to history. He says, for the grace of God, this is Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It wasn't done in secret. It's an, it's an open event. God has no secret doctrines. And what he does, he does for all to see. The grace of God, that is his favor, his kindness. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. Remember the uh, song of the angels and the annunciation to the shepherds. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's the message, and it's an awesome message. For the grace of God, that is his favor and kindness that brings salvation, has appeared to all men. That's history. That's happened. It has appeared. It has a present application. Note verse 12, teaching us. So we are instructed by the coming of God's grace. And Paul's referring to Christ there. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that is the desire for all the things in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, which actually can be translated as the pride of possessions. Interesting, because it's the word bios. It's, we, get, we get the word biology, the things that make up life. If you remember in 1 John, when he says, Whoso has this, uh, whosoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and basically hardens his heart against him, John asks, how does the love of God dwell in a, a person like that? When it says this world's goods, the word good, for, it's translated goods there, it's this world's bios. It has to do with possessions, the things that make up life. And so the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life uh, is not of the Father, it's of the world. Now, God gives us all possessions, and he blesses us, and we can give him thanks and use them. As Paul said, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. So there's nothing wrong with having a measure of wealth and having possessions as long as we know who they ultimately belong to. But here we see Paul tells us that we are to deny ungodliness, that is living contrary to God's word, and worldly lust. We're not to be guided just by the, those three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, you know, which are never satisfied no matter what, and the pride of life. Uh, Paul says we've been taught to deny those things and we should live presently, soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, soberly, has to do with being serious-minded. It takes in the idea of not being intoxicated or using substance you know, abuses or something like that. So, you know, we use that term to be sober, and we generally think it means, well, you're not drinking, I guess. But, and it does mean that, because if you're drinking, you can't think straight, okay? And if you're smoking pot, you're not going to be able to think straight. So we're to deny those types of things, and we, we want to thank God, you know, for deliverance from the, and the forgiveness of sin. So we're to live soberly, that's seriously-minded, righteously that means according to god's word remember what does the lord require of you O man but to love mercy to do justly and to walk humbly with your god that's in micah um, so to to live righteously and godly that means as those who belong to the lord you need to know who you are okay uh, in the present age right now not say well you know someday i'll, I'll actually be doing what's right just not going to start this week. Uh-uh. The grace of God teaches us now to live for the Lord, to live godly. 
Now, as Christians, we struggle with sin. We fail miserably all too often. But I read a quote this past week. I'm not, I'm trying to remember if it was Thomas Carlyle or Richard Sibbs, I couldn't remember. But it was a statement that Christ told us to forgive our brother 70 times seven, uh, meaning that don't keep track of it. If your brother trespasses and then turns again and says, I repent, he said, you shall forgive him. Remember, because Peter said, shall I, give my, shall I forgive my brother? Was he talking about Andrew? I don't know. But he said, uh, should I forgive my brother seven times? Peter thought he was being very magnanimous. And I'll forgive my brother seven times. Okay? He had a little brother. We know Andrew was his brother. Uh, and probably Andrew got on Peter's nerves at times when they were growing up as children and young men. So Peter thought, I'm going to be really gracious. I'll forgive him seven times. And Jesus said, no, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. It's like, man, how do you keep track of that? The idea is you don't. Anyway, the quote was simply saying, if Jesus told Peter to do that, what do you think God does with you? You say, oh, I failed, I failed again. I, I sinned, so God doesn't want me now. Yeah, I, I think I've reached the uh, 70 times 7, so I, I, it's over for me now. I'm just going to go back in the world. No, 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 no. He picks you up, dusts you off, gives you a hug. Spiritually, we're talking, the comfort of his word, uh, and sends you back into the battle, and he heals your wounds, okay? So if you're struggling and if you failed, you don't give up. Your Savior is gracious. But make an effort not to fail, okay? That's what Paul's saying right here. We're to live God right, soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And how do we do that? What do we keep our eyes on? Well, you've heard the phrase, you know, keep your eyes on the prize. It's a cute little saying, and it's pretty true. What is the prize? Well, the good thing that's ahead, that beautiful day, that perfect day that's coming. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing, and note how he describes Jesus here, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is the Son of God. To know him is to know God, and he is one with the Father of the same Substance, uh, we say that in the creed, uh, the two Latin words is substantia, it means of the, the same, whatever God is, that's what Jesus is. Jesus is God, the same with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Another term used theologically is the essence, the essentia, that what God is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all share that nature of being one true God in three persons. There's only one God but he has revealed himself to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the, just as the Father is true God, so the Son is true God, and so the Holy Spirit is. So Paul here, in pointing out the glorious appearing, who? Of our great God. Now that should probably strike some fear into people. The one that's coming back is the one that knows everything you've ever said, thought, or done. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the one that's coming back. The one who's coming back, as Paul says in Romans 8, if you want to flip over there real quick before we uh, do a little more exegesis, when Paul's talking about the grace of God in Christ, Paul says in verse uh, 31, after talking about God's plan and purpose of calling his elect, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If you're well, what does that mean? Well, look what he says. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That is, those whom the Father gave to the Son. 
Who's, going, who's able to bring a charge against them before God? And that's the only place where it could do you some harm. Well, he says, it is God who justifies. The only one who can condemn you is the one who has declared you righteous in Christ. I love this passage, all right? You, those who have been around here for a while know I, I refer to it often. All right? So, again, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So the only one who could bring a charge against you before God is the one who's declared you righteous. That means he's not going to condemn you. This eighth chapter starts off with Paul saying, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He then adds, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That is, there's been a change in their life. They've been born again, right? That's the important thing to consider. Who is he who condemns? Who can condemn you before God? There is one person in the universe that has the authority to condemn you and send you to hell. And Paul's going to tell you who it is. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ. Who died. Wait a minute, who did he die for? His people, believers. You can say, well, I believe in him. Then he died for you. The only one that can, could condemn you died so that you wouldn't be condemned. That's what he's saying. That's how much he loves you. And furthermore, is also risen. That's because your sins were taken away in his death, his sufferings and death. He underwent hell for you on the cross. He paid the debt you couldn't pay. So who can condemn? Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The only one that can condemn you is at the Father's right hand, pleading on your behalf. You're safe, beloved. You don't need to be afraid. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? All right, can something separate us from this? We just figured out God's not going to throw us away. Is there something else? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or so Bad days, bad things. Can that separate us? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul says in 37 here, he says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the note, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, that is all the spiritual realms, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. God's not going to separate you from his love. And there's nothing anywhere. And that's Paul really kind of sets that forth. He, he names everything from every angle, every perspective, height nor depth, everything in the spiritual realms. The good angels might say, you know, that guy has no right to be in heaven. God says, no, that Christ died for him or her. It's okay. The wicked angels, you know, the fallen ones, Satan and his hordes, they don't want you there because they, they're they, you know, hoping that you'll end up in the lake of fire where they're going to be, okay? They can't do anything to you. You know, they can nip your heels. Jesus said the time's coming when the one who kills you might think he's doing God's service. But Jesus said, don't be afraid. So you're safe in that regard, that because of the, we look forward to the appearing of our great God. God is almighty, that's a term that we need to explore even more. We need to understand. He's able to do everything you can imagine, and your imagination is like a pinprick on the canvas of the universe compared to what he actually can do. His, the infiniteness, trying to stretch a few words here, the infiniteness of his ability and power is known only to him because he is infinite. 
And again, you know, for us creatures to figure out infinity, we take an idea and then we knock the ends out and go, oh, that must be infinity. But, but it's something entirely other than that, okay? Uh, God is infinite in his wisdom, in his knowledge, in his power, in his being, in his goodness, in his grace. And it goes so far beyond anything we can even begin to understand. That's why Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now we go, ah, so to know God is eternal life. Yes, it does say that, and that's what it means. But there's another aspect of that verse. By the way, that's John 17, 3. When Jesus said that, what he means is the only... The only way for a creature to begin to know the true God is for that creature to be able to live for all eternity. And that's so that you can know, and actually can be translated, so that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You're never going to exhaust the knowledge of God. It's going to increase. You're going to know more about God, his love, his grace, his goodness. You know, you're going to look back and go, oh, yeah, you know, whether we remember anything of this life, you know, if we need to. When I say, oh, there's a good day coming ahead, beloved, there's an eternity of good days coming, all right? Um, however, time will be measured when we're in the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be a good day for those that are in Christ. And he reminds us just who this Jesus is. He's our great God and Savior who gave himself for us. All right, if somebody dies for you, that's wonderful. Somebody loved you enough to lay down their life. You know, that's why we honor soldiers that have died in combat. You know, because we recognize they died sometimes very sad deaths because of the people that were back home that they loved and wanted to protect and what they were trying to do. And we honor them, okay? Christ gave himself for us. He died so that you could live. And because he took away your sins, God raised his son up again. And all men will be raised. We've seen that. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. That's not other people's lawless deeds there, beloved. That's your lawless deeds. Christ came to redeem you, to buy you out from the punishment that was due to you by his precious blood being shed. And that means him giving his life because the life is in the blood. To redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself. He didn't just leave you alone. He's at work in you. He saves you out of sin, then he begins to work in you and sanctify you. And to purify that is he gets the garbage out of your heart, out of your mind. He begins to break up the power of sin in your life. The power of sin has been broken, but we got a lot of house sweeping to do, okay? And he's getting these things out. And purify for himself his own special people, a unique people. The old King James says, a peculiar people, and some have laughed at that. said, yeah, some of God's people are kind of peculiar, okay? Uh, that nowadays, that kind of means like weird, and that's probably true for some of us. Uh, but who cares what the world thinks, right? But we're his own special people, his own peculiar or unique people. There's nobody like the people of God on this earth. That's why the world can't figure out Christ's church, and that's why they end up generally hating it until their own heart's if that pleases God and by his grace, are changed. But to purify his own special people, zealous for good work. So he doesn't just leave you where you are. You know, he doesn't just leave you to stew in a pew. Okay, he puts good works in front of you, opportunities to do things that are pleasing to him. You go, well, I don't know what I should do. Well, you can pray. 
oh my goodness, the ministry of prayer is so untapped. We wonder, like, well, look at the, the condition of the church in the United States today. Look at the condition of the United States. Look at the condition of things around us in our own culture and society. Look at the world's condition. Beloved, we need to pray. We often hear this, you know, the, the term prayer warrior. We need prayer workers. We need prayer warriors and prayer workers. We need people to go before God and call upon him for his blessings and his power. God has ordained the end, that is what he's going to do, but he's also ordained that he's not going to do certain things until his people begin to pray. You know the Bible verses, if my people shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. And so we need, our land's in need of healing. Look at our culture. Look at the stuff going on in, you know, in our young people. The crazy stuff, sad, tragic things, people ruining their lives. We need to pray. So if you say, well, I don't know what kind of good work the Lord wants me to start with prayer. I don't know how to pray. Well, we just prayed the Lord's Prayer. Start exploring that. What do each one of those petitions mean? What does it mean to, to ask God to sanctify his name? Hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Holy. Make your name holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a radical prayer. So he's redeemed to himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And then Paul tells Titus, speak these things. This isn't a secret doctrine. Talk about this. Get the word out. Exhort. That actually means to encourage. I mentioned before, uh, you know, I got saved a little bit before the Jesus movement started. And so the Jesus movement was back in the early 70s. And there were a lot of hippy-dippy people got saved. Some got saved out of being hippy-dippy. Some got just saved as hippies, all right? But I remember some of the, the brothers, they'd get, they'd get short with each other. They'd get, you know, kind of lose their temple a little bit. And they'd go, I'm going to go exhort that, brother. And I was like, well, man, I don't want to be on the receiving end of that, you know. And I got exhorted a few times. Then I found out, I was, did a concordance study. With I said, hey, that word exhort means to encourage. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean to go throw up on somebody verbally or chew them out. I mean, it could. Sometimes that's necessary because he says that. Rebuke also. But exhortation means to encourage someone. So he says, speak these things. Encourage and rebuke. Sometimes people need to be told. Hey, look at this beautiful direction that God's opened for you. By the way, the way you're going, that ain't it. You need to turn around. You need to get some of these things out of your life. You're breaking God's law. You're not loving God as you should or your neighbor. So sometimes, Paul's telling Titus, sometimes you're going to have to rebuke people. But note what he says first. Okay? Encourage. That is, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Because if you're saying what God is saying, it's possible and should be understood that that is what God is saying. And if God uses you to bring his word to people, that's the Lord telling them, if you're faithful to the word when you're teaching and preaching and speaking. Okay, and that's what he's telling them. Do it with all authority because it's not your ideas, it's not your words, it's God's word. Make sure they understand that. Otherwise, they're going to go, well, that guy Titus here has a lot of opinions. They need to know that what Titus was saying is from God. Now, in order for Titus to do that, he has to say what God has said and not just what Titus thinks. Same thing every preacher has to do. We preach the word of God. And then he says, let no one despise you. That means to ignore. Remember when Jesus said, see that you don't despise one of these little ones that believe in me? It's really easy to overlook a child, okay? <laughs> Some of you parents might want to disagree, but they're generally pretty quiet, okay? They're dependent. And it's easy to forget about them when we're making plans. 
And we're not supposed to despise them. That is, we're not supposed to ignore them. We're supposed to recognize those are members of God's kingdom. Jesus said, he didn't say little children have to become adults. He said adults need to become like little children. Okay? And so it's important to remember that. Don't despise children. But he's saying to Titus, don't let anybody despise you. Don't let them just put you off. You know, just shake their head and walk away. You need to, he doesn't, he's not saying be confrontative a little bit with the idea of rebuke there. But he's saying, don't let anybody walk away saying that's just your opinions. You need to preach what God's word says. Christ is coming again. There is a beautiful day ahead. Jesus says in Matthew 25, in speaking of this, in verse 31, he says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory. This is a day that's yet future. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. If you want to read the rest of chapter 25, where he talks about, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. That's what he says to the sheep, the righteous. The wicked, when he says, inasmuch as you didn't do this, to my brethren, one of my brethren, you didn't do it to me. And he says, these shall go away in everlasting punishment. But when Christ returns for believers, it's a beautiful day. In Romans chapter 14, Paul says, uh, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Here's a good question. Christians are pretty good at that sometimes. Or why do you set aside or set it not your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Note that Christ is coming, your sins are forgiven, and you will give an account of yourself before God. Paul says that. For it is written, and this is still from Romans 14, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. And then Paul adds here, but this is Romans 14. It's the same book in the Bible that we just read in chapter 8 about nothing can separate us from God's love. So you don't need to be terrified by this statement. He says, uh, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So please don't think if you're doing things you shouldn't be doing that it's not going to come up on the day of judgment. There will be an accounting. It's like going to the dentist. God's going to deal with stuff that needs to be dealt with. There'll be an accounting. At the end of all that accounting, you know what happens, I believe? Quite clearly, the grace of God shines forth. Christ is glorified, and the angels are going to be amazed and go, whoa, that person got saved by the death of Christ. And they'll understand even, you know, angels are finite creatures also. And they'll understand, wow, how great is the love of God. And through all eternity, it doesn't mean you're going to have to, you know, wear a scarlet letter or have a sign hung around your neck with all your sins listed in eternity so that people can see the grace of God. Just the fact that you're in heaven is going to be a testimony of how good and gracious and kind Jesus is. How much the love of God was able to conquer that's us, and we won't be ashamed to have that title. Yes, I am a, a former sinner saved by grace, and Christ not only took me out of sin, he took sin out of me. Ultimately, that will happen. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. Again, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Okay, and the word bad there, kakan, can mean ugly, all right? So don't be doing ugly stuff. So note, though, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
He's writing to Christians when he says that. Now that word judgment seat is the word bima, and some have said, well, that's a place like in the Olympic Games where the athletes came and they received the crown, the laurel, show that they had won. And some say, yeah, that's probably a better understanding. And notice here, Paul does not say we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that it might be determined if we're worthy to enter into heaven. That's already been determined at the cross. You already went through that judgment in your substitute at Calvary. Christ was judged to hell for your sins. And he endured it, paid the full price, and then broke the bars of death and rose from the dead for you, as you. So he doesn't say you must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to see if you're worthy to enter into heaven. He says, so that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. So he's talking here about rewards or lack thereof, all right, and opportunities missed. You know, I often think when it says, uh, in reference to the judgment, it says, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. I think on that day when we realize the multitude of opportunities to do good, you know how many times we stepped over Lazarus at the gate to go into the party because we couldn't be bothered? God will need to wipe away every tear from our eyes. When we see, wow, Lord Jesus, I really failed you. The good news is Jesus never failed you, so it'll be okay. And so when you have opportunity to do good, do it. All right? And I mean the things that are taught in the Bible, not man-made, foolish, supposedly religious rituals and works. What God says to do, love your neighbor, be helpful to each other. Why? Because every one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. In Malachi chapter 4, this is the Old Testament before Christ came. Malachi prophesied and said, For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Pretty scary. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness, that's S-U-N, like the rising of the sun, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, that is, well-fed and happy. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. In the day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. You're not going to look up and see a thermometer or a temperature gauge that says 78 degrees in the Bay Area. You're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne of glory. Though the second advent of Christ is anticipated by the wicked as a dread and will be experienced by them as an eternal nightmare, for the redeemed of the Lord, it is anticipated as the blessed hope and will be experienced by them as the beginning of eternal joy and rejoicing in the glorious presence of God in Christ. For the saved, it will be the most beautiful of all days. In Acts chapter 3, Peter said, in speaking to the crowd that he was preaching to, he said, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive 
until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. You say, wait a minute, did God talk about this in ancient times? Yes, in the book of Jude, it tells us what Enoch said. Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam in Genesis. Jude tells us, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, that is, that there would be wicked men and apostates later. He prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, myriads of his holy ones, to execute judgment upon all and to convince <coughs> all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude writes and says, Enoch talked about this in the seventh generation from Adam. Before the great flood, he could see beyond that to the time when Christ comes in the final judgment. So this is not something that nobody knew about in history. God has raised up prophets and apostles to proclaim these truths. In John chapter 6, Jesus said in verse 39, And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing. Note that but should raise it up at the last day. When's the resurrection of believers? On the last day of history. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life. Well, how do you see the Son? Well, when he's preached, you see him by faith. If you look to Jesus, he said, everyone that sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life. And then Jesus gave this promise. And I will raise him up at the last day. There will be a resurrection. In 2 Peter 3, beginning at verse 9, Peter wrote and said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And that's, if you read it in context, it's the promise of the second coming. Because Peter said some will be denying that, saying, where's the promise of his coming? So Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's talking, when he says to us word, he's talking about the elect. He's saying the reason why Christ hasn't returned is the full number of those who are going to be saved that's known only to God has not yet been fulfilled. You know, if Christ had come back before you were saved, you would have been in trouble. God waits. He's patient. Why hasn't Jesus returned? Because some of the elect maybe haven't been born yet. You know, if he'd come 100 years ago, where would we be? Okay? We wouldn't be, period. Okay? So, He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Some say, well, that means everybody. Then Jesus can't ever return because there's a whole lot of people never coming to repentance. So he's obviously not talking about that. He's waiting for the full number of the elect to repent and believe. But then he tells us, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away. What's that last day going to be like? Well, here it is. Okay, uh, he's going to come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. They're going to be broken up, I believe, on an atomic level. And the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Then Peter says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in him in all holy conversation, that means manner of life, and godliness, Looking for and hastening. Now, Titus was told looking for the blessed hope. Same thing here Peter's looking at from a slightly different perspective. He says, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, 
wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Why the delay? So you can get saved and God can begin to work in your life. He's not going to give up on you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to those that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's already said in 1 Thessalonians that when Christ returns, the dead will be raised and will be caught up to be with the Lord. So when this is going on, we'll be with the Lord, but this is what happens. Uh, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, when they were told to repent and believe, they ignored it. And they will be punished. Because if, you, you know, if you're in a sinking ship, I've used that analogy before, and there's a lifeboat and you refuse to get in it because you don't like the way it looks or the people that are there. Or well, somebody said something mean to me once. So I'm not getting in that lifeboat, okay? That's the way some folks are. You know, they find an excuse for everything. Uh, then they'll perish. And that's what Paul's say, or saying here. So he says, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they don't obey it. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. That means it's never going to end. From the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed, in that day. So that last day of history is when this happens. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, he said, And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. <laughs> so your Savior said, listen to this again, please. Jesus speaking to the apostles and by extension to us. That's why John wrote it down so we could read it centuries later. And ye now therefore have sorrow. So maybe this isn't the best day you've ever had. Maybe you're going to have some sad days ahead. I hope you don't, but I think we all know that in this veil of tears, this valley that we walk through is often the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus knows that and he walks with us. I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Jesus says, and you now therefore have sorrow, but didn't know what he said to his apostles, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. John says also in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and now little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Remember when Jude wrote his epistle, in chapter 1, there's only one chapter, but verse 24 and 25. He's referring, I believe, to the second coming of Christ, that beautiful day that's yet ahead. It's going to be a beautiful day. It's a day of rejoicing. There's been a lot of hymns written about it from a praise standpoint, not just, you know, there's an old medieval hymn called Dies Irae, Dies Ila, uh, the day of wrath, day of woe, um, when 
all the heaven and earth turned to ashes, you know, et cetera. And it goes on, it's, uh, some have said it's depressing, but it's actually a pretty good poem. It was written in the uh, 1200s by a Franciscan monk, and it was, it's pretty good if you ever want to look it up. Or I, I posted it on my uh, Facebook page if you're interested in finding it. Um, but for us, it's not a day of woe and day of wrath. It is for the world, but for us, it's a day of full redemption. Our bodies will be changed, will be raised from the dead, incorruptible. That's 1 Corinthians 15. You'll never sin again, all right? Your spirit went to be with the Lord when you died. When Christ returns, he brings you with, with him. Your soul is reunited, your soul and spirit to your body. You're raised up incorruptible. You're caught up to be with the Lord in glory. It's going to be good. Jude says this, Now to him who is able, you know he's willing, he's also able, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. Now it's one thing to talk about standing before God. It's another thing to say he's going to have you stand there faultless. How so? We've done some pretty bad things in our lives. We've done some pretty ugly stuff. We may yet stumble and do things we're ashamed of. We don't want to, but that's kind of how we are sometimes. Because you'll stand there as a person who's fully forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's your salvation. He's able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You're going to be happy when you see Jesus. Because your sins have been forgiven. Because Christ died and he took that hell that you deserve when he suffered on the cross so that it would never come near you the only way hell can get to you is through jesus christ and he ain't gonna let it come near you he already dealt with it he killed death on the cross with exceeding joy and i believe and i've said this before that's not just on your side that's on your savior's side he died to save you do you think he's not going to be happy to see you on that day Jesus is, and I'm not trying to just use, you know, anthropomorphic, you know, man, you know, terminology. And I don't want to sound flippant when I say this, but if you could say, use the term beside himself with joy, that's going to describe Jesus. It says he shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Jesus is going to be happy to see you on that day. He's not coming back to deal with you as a stern judge and condemn you and beat you up and maybe make you think he might throw you into hell. He's coming back because he died for you and he loves you and he's loved you through all eternity. And now finally you're there fully redeemed, raised up, saved, body, soul, and spirit. And he's going to be filled with joy because he is even right now. He knows what he did for you. And he's watching the outcome and the application of it in history. But on that day, he's going to present you before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. No, to God our Savior. Because we're talking about Jesus able to do this because he is God the Son. He's true God of true God. Who alone is wise. He knows how to do it. To him be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. There's a beautiful day coming, and it's the second advent of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, when we'll be with the Lord for eternity. And that's just simply the threshold, the opening of the doors of the new heaven and the new earth, where we're going to be forever. You think this earth has beautiful stuff. Can you imagine a, a new heaven and a new earth where there's no sin? That's what Peter said. We, nevertheless, according to his promise, 
We look for a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. It's going to be beautiful. Not just a beautiful day. There's going to be plenty of But the second coming of Jesus, that is the beautiful day. And so I hope you look forward to it because it's coming. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless us now and be with us. Pray that you would forgive us our sins. And Lord, we pray that you would completely pardon and cleanse and work in us. Make us to be your people in truth. Lord, we know this day is coming. Oh Lord, we do desire for it to be a day of rejoicing and joy, to look forward to it as the blessed hope, and not in terror or shame, but to know that you are our Savior, Lord Jesus, you love us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son to be the Savior. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work of redemption. Father, that you planned for the Son that he accomplished it and for the Holy Spirit who applies it. So, Lord, complete your work in us and be glorified, we pray, and fill our hearts with joy even now in anticipation of that day. For, Father, we ask all these things with the forgiveness of our sins and asking you to really conform us to your image and help us to be your people in truth. For we ask all this in the name of our God and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ.